We're going to be looking at Numbers 30, and we spent a couple of weeks on Numbers 29, which was all about uh, the Israel's calendar, their covenant calendar, the holidays and the festivals and their corporate worship. And now chapter 30 is going to kind of zero in on the individual worship. Um, there's, there's ways that you worshiped as a community. You came together, you celebrated the feasts, all those things that we saw the last two weeks. But then there were also during those feasts, a lot of times during those times, there would be chances to fulfill your individual obligations or vows or pledges. And that would often accompany these festival celebrations. So the psalmist would talk about before the assembly, I've fulfilled my vow, you know, that type of language or vows would be fulfilled at the tabernacle. Um, And it was kind of an act of worship, an individual worship within the corporate worship of the sacrifices and things. And vows and pledges were entirely voluntary. They were not commanded by God. God actually warns His people elsewhere in Scripture against making vows if they're not going to keep them and that He doesn't require them. But vows and pledges and oaths were such a part of the ancient world that there, it's another example of things that Scripture speaks to, the Old Testament, the Torah, speaks to because it was part of Israel's national life. Um, God didn't invent the concept of sacrifices, but Torah says this is how you're going to do it to differentiate you from how you've been doing it, how the peoples around you do it. And it's that kind of thing with vows. It was that kind of thing with divorce. You know, we looked at that. That was not ever, God didn't invent it or desire it, but Scripture legislated it okay this exists so this is how it's going to happen among you guys and it's that way with vows too is these vows and oaths they're part of ancient near east culture you can read you actually can read about them on inscriptions from mesopotamia people making these vows vows were things like if the great god so and so grants me this then i will do this that's a vow you'd make or an oath, you know, by the name of Marduk or Baal or whichever other god, I solemnly pledge that I will do such and such. You know, it was a very public thing. It was like a contract. We don't have these, uh, we have written contracts now, but back then they started as oral contracts and then maybe they were inscribed and preserved later. But the whole point of it is people had this desire to make vows or acts of personal devotion to the gods. And that Israel was no exception. There was that desire. People are hardwired to worship stuff, something. And God's not against that. He's just, okay, if you're going to do it, here's how you need to do it to reflect me. Here's how you need to do it to do it right. And another example of when vows would happen were in the context of war. Uh, A general or a king or a ruler would say, you know, grant me, Lord, victory over this enemy and I will do such and such. And we see that in Scripture. Uh, Israel did it in uh, previous chapters when they asked for God to give them victory over uh, the Amorites and the Midianites. And in turn, they would devote or, or, or offer up their towns that were captured to God as, as, as a, basically an offering, a burnt offering. And this was a common thing. And so it's no coincidence then that this section on vows comes right between the two chapters, one chapter on the holidays and the festivals and worship, and then the next chapter is going to be about battle and, and those, those same Midianites who attacked them and harassed them and, uh, and, and went after them. So this forms a hinge between these two sections and numbers that's going to get us back into the narrative um, that the book will end with. 
Now, the other thing about this chapter and about vows is when you made a vow, you, it wasn't just a, hey, I promise I'll do such and such. It was on the honor of whatever, I solemnly vow to do such. Like it was this big, you know, it was, it was like a pinky swear. <laughs> or it was like, you know, cross my heart, hope to die. No, we don't even have the language in it really, but it was the more, the greater the thing you swore by, the more serious the vow was. And that was just how it worked. You know, we hear that, you know, oh, I swear on my mother's grave, you know, that kind of thing. Like, that's a pretty serious thing. Um, I, I swear on the life of my kids. You know, that's a pretty serious thing. And it's a way of people saying, you can really, really trust what I'm saying. You can really trust it. And it, it has this self-imprecatory notion of like, if I'm lying, then may my mother's grave be you know, whatever, may my kids do something. That's what, that's a cultural remnant that we have, but it's based on something that was very widespread in the ancient world, even through the times of Jesus and on into the New Testament. So it's important because as we're looking at this chapter, we're stepping back into that world and it's different in our world in a lot of ways. And we've seen this before in these studies of the Old Testament when we look at things like um, the, the laws about marriage, about uh, slavery, about... Uh, things that are devoted in battle, uh, all of these concepts that we don't have anymore, we have, to, we have to take precaution that we don't jump into the chapter from our position. Because when we do that, what you'll end up doing is either reading it and saying, okay, well, we just need to do this today. Or you'll read it and go, oh, well, this is, clearly shows how off and untrustworthy the Bible is because of how bad and you know immoral, unjust this was. So we either become a skeptic or a, a hyper-legalist. And in reality, what we need to do as we constantly see in this Bible study, we show this, is we need to hold both of those positions away and say, no, forget, forget the application. First, let's understand what it actually was. And let's understand it in that culture. Then... Let's see what it would have spoken to the people in that culture. And let's take those concepts or principles and then see how those principles, not the actual words of the text, but the message of the text applies in our situation today. That's how you, basically how you do Bible study. Uh, it's just in this part of the Bible, we're much further removed than we are from the New Testament even. So it's a seminary, they call it the hermeneutical bridge. Like you have to cross, you're crossing a bridge. You're going back into a, a country, a world. You're crossing the river of time, going back into pulling something out, seeing it in its own context, and then you're bringing it back across the bridge and seeing how does it fit in our world today. That's just Bible 101 type stuff. But that rarely gets taught or preached in churches. And so a lot of people just don't know what to do when they read a chapter like this. So we're going to do that. Chapter 30, verse 1. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. Now in the Hebrew, that's actually the last verse of the previous chapter. So in the Hebrew text, the things that we just read are what the Lord commands. The Greek text, which is what our English comes from, those numbers, it's pointing to this. So it's chapter 1. Anyway, if you look at this in a Jewish Bible and then you look at it in an English Bible, the verses won't line up. It drove me crazy for a minute when I was translating this chapter. I was like, that's not what this verse says. And then I realized like, oh, okay, it's what the verse before it said. And you had to get on track with it. But 
Verse 3, or verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, literally the Hebrew says when a man vows a vow or pledges a pledge, because that's what you do in Hebrew, you blank a blank. So you dream a dream, you sacrifice a sacrifice, you vow a vow. That's how you lie a lie. <laughs> that's how it works. But in English it doesn't read very well. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the vowels change depending on the grammar. The consonants are the important thing. N-D-R. Netter is the noun. Yeah, but the verb form of it would be nadar. The vowels change. This is why Hebrew is so hard for people to grab. The vowels, the vowels are inconsequential because they, well, they're not, but the vowels change based on if it's a verb, if it's a noun, if it's, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the consonants. In Hebrew, pay attention to the consonants. And N-D-R is the root of this verb, yeah. And it means, it, it, that's what a vow, that's the word for a vow. We've already read about one of the main vows, by the way. Numbers chapter 6, this book started with the first vow that was introduced was the Nazarite vow. And that was a vow saying, because I want to do this and show my devotion to the Lord, I'm going to refrain from this, which in the case was cutting the hair, drinking things, or eating things from the vine, and for a set time. That was a vow. That was a Nazarite vow. Well, so the book started that way, and now it's drawing to its conclusion, kind of bookending it with getting back to this vow. And Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, those of you who were here with us in 2016, Leviticus ended, the whole, the whole book ended with a chapter on regulations for men who make vows. And raised the question, well, what about the women? Well, this chapter is actually going to address that that was left hanging from Leviticus 27. When the man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word. Literally in Hebrew, it's he must not profane his word. But it means to break his promise or break his word. He must do everything he said. So that's, that's the governing principle of this chapter. If you make a vow, if you do it, and God doesn't command you to, but if you do, you have to keep it. You have to keep your vow. If you don't, you're doing what the third commandment prohibited. You're lifting up the name of the Lord in vanity, in emptiness, in meaninglessness. That's what the third commandment prohibits. The third commandment, as we saw back three years ago in Exodus, wasn't don't say, oh my God. That's not what the third commandment prohibited, although it would kind of fall in that category. What it prohibited was don't lift up the name of Yahweh meaninglessly, lightly, flippantly. Well, if you make a vow, you invoke the name of the Lord in your vow. I mean, that's what they would have done. So then if you break that vow, you're profaning the name of the Lord. This is why later Jewish tradition, they would come up with, well, we're not going to swear by the Lord, but we'll swear by the temple. Well, we're not going to swear by the temple, but we'll swear by the gold in the temple. And we'll swear by, you know, it would, they would remove themselves from it rhetorically. And Jesus came along later and was like, don't do any of that. It's all stupid. Just yes means yes, no means no. Like Jesus would say that Matthew 7. He's like, you've heard it said, you know, this is how you should do it. Don't do any of that. There should be, in God's economy, there should not be the need for, and he was talking about person-to-person -person stuff, there shouldn't be a need for a vow. If you say yes, that should mean yes. And no should mean no. And if you have to make a vow in order for people to believe you, that speaks to your character. And so Jesus, again, like he did with divorce, he sort of undercut even the, 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 the traditions that had built up around Torah that were legislated without being condoned, and he pointed back to the, 
very beginning, back to the higher ideal, which is what God wanted. God wants a people who don't even need to make vows in order for people to believe their word. But God says if you're going to do it, if you make a vow, you have to do it. So then He says there's exceptions though. Verse 3, when a young woman, and this is the equivalent of the word for, the word na'ar is young man, and uh, na'ara, I can't remember the pronunciation exactly, but this is the equivalent of what a young person, it's not a child necessarily, it's like somebody maybe close to marital age, but who's still living in their parents' house. Uh, this, is, this would be like a daughter still at home, not married off. Uh, when a young woman still living in her father's house makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge and her father hears about her vow or pledge but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge which she obligated to herself will stand. So in other words, a, a, a daughter makes a vow. Now why, does, why is the father even being brought in? Isn't this between her and God? Well, vows weren't sentimental. They weren't non-material. They were material things. They involved things like giving a sacrifice or paying, giving a, a, an offering, you know, exchanging money. They, they, vows were economic as much as they were spiritual. You know, or refraining from stuff. I'm going to not do certain things, which would then have ramifications for the family, especially if it's a husband and wife, which they'll get to in a minute. And the wife's like, hey, I'm, I'm vowing abstinence for a month. And the husband's like, what? I didn't agree to this. Paul actually addresses that in the New Testament, by the way. Um, and so this is putting these vows that people make within the context of ancient Near East family life. And whether we like it or not, ancient Near East family life was patriarchal. And women were either under the authority of their father or they were under the authority of their husband if they chose to marry. Now they could choose to not marry and kind of go it alone, but they didn't usually because it was not a world that was conducive to women who were trying to break the glass ceiling. Uh, it was very much you need to be dependent on somebody. That's why widows, uh, divorced women, uh, they were considered vulnerable in that society because there weren't these safeguards that we put in place. Again, this is where the bridge between our culture and theirs is very large. Uh, and we have to keep that in mind as we're reading what this says. So, if a father learns, hears, hears his daughter make a vow or hears about it and doesn't say anything, then the vow stands. And just like with a man making a vow, it stands. But if her father forbids her or prevents her when he hears about it, none of her vows or pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. So in a, in a young woman wanting to show her devotion or, or wanting to make an economic deal or something, makes a vow, makes a pledge involving giving you know, 50 livestock, whatever. Well, that's not hers to give. And the father hearing about it can say, no, I'm forbidding this. Well, in other cultures, the question would be, so what happens to her who made that vow that can't be fulfilled? The, the, the wrath of the gods will fall on her. And God's saying, if the authority in her life the father forbids it, I'm not going to take, take it out on her. She's released. She couldn't help it. She couldn't fulfill the vow, but it was because the father forbid it. The fam so, in other words, God's balancing these two things, personal piety and family, or family uh, harmony. Family, the family sphere versus the religious sphere. And this chapter is balancing those two things in the ancient Near East patriarchal culture. 
So then it says, verse 6, but if she marries after she makes a vow, she goes from being under the care of her father's house, now she's under the care of her husband, or after her lips utter a rash promise by which she obligates herself, and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her, then her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her husband forbids her when he hears about it, he nullifies the vow that obligated her or the rash promise by which she obligates herself, and the Lord will release her. So, husband, a young woman's going to get married. The husband didn't know that previously to the marriage she had vowed, I'm going to be a Nazarite, or I'm going to sacrifice this next year at the festival, or whatever. They get married, now she enters into his family, and he may be like, wait a minute, I, I don't want to marry a Nazarite, or we don't have the means to give that sacrifice that you've before. So he, as soon as he hears of it, can say, okay, I, I'm going to nullify this vow. She's released from it. She doesn't have to keep that. All right, so preserving the husband-parent-child uh, relationship, now preserving the spousal relationship in a patriarchal society, this is what it would look like. Balancing those two competing things. Verse 9, here's the one that's bizarre for this setting. Any vow or obligation taken by a widow or a divorced woman will be binding on her. Widowed or divorced, it's the same as for men. So in other words, all these vows and everything are, unless you're under the authority of a husband or a father, you're treated the same in terms of your vows. So if you're widowed, if you're divorced. We've already seen with the case of Zelophehad's daughters that women can inherit property. And the book will end picking that case back up. Women can sign contracts. Heck, women can lead the whole country by the time we get to judges. Um, they have the, it's not like, don't, don't believe when people say, oh, in the Bible, women were property. No, that's a sloppy reading. It's an unnuanced reading. Yes, there are times when women are under the authority of men, but they're never treated as property. That's, a, that's just a modern, it's an urban legend. It comes from reading a couple of verses here and there and not being familiar with Torah law. Property would mean if you kill a woman, there's no capital punishment. Not true. Exodus already said that. Property would mean women can't make vows to begin with. No, not true. Right here it says it. The exceptions are when it enters in the realm of family authority. And God is more concerned with family authority and family harmony than he is with somebody fulfilling a vow that he never asked them to make in the first place. And that's another key to remember with this chapter. This is not talking about commanded sacrifices. It's not talking about worship. So it's not like there's a grumpy, godless father and his daughter's like, I want to go worship at the temple. I forbid it. Uh, it's not that. That's not what's going on here at all. But that's how we'll read it because we read this and we're like, wait a minute, this is unequal. This is, why are the women treated different? And then our radar pops up and then we come to it either with skepticism or looking to defend everything as how it should be. And again, we have to hold that balance of saying, let's enter in this world and see how it works then. And this verse stands out, the fact that widows and orphans, in other words, if you're not under your father's authority and you're no longer under your husband's authority for whatever reason, the same thing applies to you as it does to men, which is a step forward in terms of how women are treated in the ancient world. Now, it's not as big a step forward as some of us may like, especially if we're, you know, very like women egalitarian and there's, that's a whole theological debate in and of itself. But regardless, we may look at it and go, well, that's not enough, God. You should have done more. You should have said women are equal. But well, fair enough from our perspective. But at the time, what God's dealing with in that culture, this is fairly radical. And it's also focusing in on the issue. 
And the issue is preserving that husband, wife, father, child relationship. And so it goes on then, the fourth uh, category says, if a woman living with her husband makes a vow or obligates herself by a pledge under oath and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her, doesn't forbid her, then all her vows, the pledges by which she obligated herself, will stand. But if her husband nullifies them when he hears about them, then none of the vows or pledges that came from her lips will stand. Her husband has nullified them and the Lord will release her. Her husband may confirm or nullify any vow she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself or humble herself is what the word actually says. And it usually has to do with fasting, um, but it can also have to do with just abstaining from all kinds of things. Verse 14, but if her husband says nothing to her about it from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or the pledges binding on her. He confirms them by saying nothing to her when he hears about them. So for the husband, for the father, silence is consent. The husband and the father, they are the ones held responsible for speaking up and saying, wait, whoa, 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 we're not going to do it. If they just go along with it, it stands. The vow stands. So the initiative actually has to fall on the husband or the father if they hear that a vow that their daughter or their wife has made, the husband or the father has to step up and say something. They can't just stay silent. Some commentators, and, and I kind of agree with them on this, they look at this, and they look at the previous chapter about the calendar and how it had all these hints and allusions to Genesis 1. Day and night, morning and evening, the greater light, the lesser light, the moon, the festivals, all that stuff, uh, Sabbath rest. And then they look at this chapter, and they're like, I wonder if there's an allusion to Genesis 2. Because what did Eve do when the serpent approached? Ate of the fruit. It says she took it, ate it, and gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam was the one who was charged with not eating, not Eve. Adam was the one who was charged with exercising dominion over the wild animals, not Eve. Adam was the one who was charged with exercising God's authority, his judgment, guarding and keeping the garden, which is what God put him in there for, to do to begin with. And what did he do? He remained silent. So when the guilt in the New Testament of the sin you notice when it talks about guilt in the New Testament of the original, that original sin, it, it almost never, I can't think of a time, maybe there might be one or two when it mentions Eve. It almost always mentions Adam. Uh, Adam is the one who is seen as sinning. Not e I mean, Eve, yes, but Eve, in connection, Adam said nothing. Adam was the one who bore the greater guilt. Eve was deceived by the serpent. She wasn't there when God gave the command to begin with. Adam was the one who flat out allowed the rebellion and just, yeah, all right, I'll do it. So in the New Testament, Adam's guilt is usually held higher than Eve's. Again, that doesn't get preached a lot um, because we hear the children's version. And I remember as a kid thinking, if Eve didn't eat that apple, none of this would be, you know, we wouldn't be in this to begin with. And then as I studied Scripture, got a little older, realized Adam's technically was the one who had the bigger... Uh, the bigger fault in that scenario. He was the, put it this way, Adam had greater responsibility. And as Spider-Man teaches us, great power comes great responsibility. All right? Gospel according to Peter Parker. So, <clears throat> it goes on, it says, 15, if, however, he nullifies them sometime after he hears about them, then he is responsible for her guilt. So if the husband, you know, let's say marries his wife, she vows, we're going to give half of our livestock at the next festival in Jerusalem if God will grant us a child or whatever and the husband's like oh, all right you know it doesn't say anything God grants him a child 
time comes and the husband's like counting the sheep and is like, wait a minute, we can't afford that. I nullify it. Well, in that case, the husband bears all the guilt. The wife's released. She made the vow. He said nothing. He's the one breaking it. Whereas in other cultures, it would be, well, she didn't fulfill her vow, so she's the one in trouble. So again, it's this, and then he goes on 16, these are the regulations the Lord gave Moses concerning relationships between a man and his wife and between a father and his young daughter still living in his house. That's the summary of the chapter. This chapter is about vows, but it's about vows in the realm of relationships. The relationship between husband and wife, the relationship between father and daughter. Now, the text doesn't tell us, well, what about boys that make a vow? What about sons that are living under their father's care? The text doesn't really deal with that. Presumably, they would fall under the logic, and that's where the judges would have to make this out, and the rabbis would have to debate it, which they did. How does this play out if it's a boy, or if it's a son, or this and that? But in the text itself, what we have is God speaking specifically to involving, the case involving women. What's going to happen when women make vows? Which presupposes, again, that women have the ability to make vows. And when they do, it's up to the husband to void it. Otherwise, it's binding. It's just as binding as if a man made it. So, so it puts the... We, again, we read this and some of us, our inclination is to be like, that's not fair, it's not equal. But in the culture, in the time, this puts the responsibility squarely on the husband and the father in these cases. That they're the ultimate ones who will be held responsible for those who are within their authoritative sphere keeping their, or breaking their promises. So it's, it's a chapter that, again, what's the, what's the life application of this? You know, do you, if you're going to put this on somebody's get well card and they read it, they'd be like, okay, what's the precious moment and I'm supposed to get out of this? You know, like, I don't understand. So this is when we have to go, okay, well, looking at it in its context, we see some things that we can pull out and bring back across the bridge into our time. One of those things is God does not ever demand vows. We don't have to do something in order for Him to do something. Like He's the initiator of blessings and promises. Vows were solely being regulated because people from the beginning of time have felt an obligation to give something to something greater, hoping that that greater thing will reciprocate. That's a human instinct. And this shows us that none of it ever came from God to begin with. The second thing it shows us is that God enters into, like we said, He enters into the life of His people even when they're doing stuff that He's like, I don't really, I didn't, this isn't my idea. Instead of just saying, stop doing it and completely break from your entire culture and your entire world, He comes in and says, alright, here's how this is going to happen among you in your setting. This is going to be the, the and, he, and the, the regulations that He puts in place, like with divorce, like with marriage laws, are the ones that end up actually giving more protection to the parties who would be less, um, who would have less say over what goes on. So he, he always puts these regulations in that from our perspective, we're like, oh, that's you know, patriarchal or misogynist or whatever. But from the people at the time, it's like, oh, okay, well, that really helps me then. If I make a vow, it's ultimately, if I'm under the authority of my father and I make a vow, then it's ultimately up to him if he nullifies it and I can't keep it. 
It's a, on the day he hears of it. Yeah, so it was his hearing. Yeah, it was always too. Yeah, God doesn't hold somebody accountable for something they had no idea about. It was when you hear about it, that's when you have the chance as the authority figure to go, okay, wait a minute, that was a rash vow, or no, we can't fulfill that vow. So I'm going to nullify that, and God will, you know, all blame falls on me. Um, the also, it teaches us, I think the most important point of this chapter, and we'll end with this one, is even in matters of religious piety, like above and beyond devotion, that's what this is. This is about those going above and beyond. Even in those things, God's concern is much heavier on preserving the relation bonds between family members than it is offerings and gifts that people make to Him. So Jesus critiqued the leaders in His day. He's like, you guys actually use the law to break the law. You say, oh, I would help you mom and dad who depend on me in their elder years, but everything that I was going to give you, I've declared it Corbin. I've declared it a gift to God. So eh, I can't really, it's God's, I can't give it to you. And Jesus is like, that is complete blasphemy. God doesn't care about that kind of stuff. If you're not keeping the more fundamental thing and that honor your father and mother, that's a commandment. That's one of the big ones. So again, in Torah, we owe, today's uh, this week and to Reformation Day, you know, Martin Luther nailed the thesis. Martin Luther was used by God for some great things. The Reformation was used by God for some great things. I mean, I'm Protestant. I stand here as a child of the Reformation. But the Reformation also did some things or left the legacies that weren't so great. Uh, one of those legacies was the mischaracterization that the Reformers had of the Jews in the Old Testament as just being based on law, law, law. God just cared about law in the Old Testament, New Testament's grace. I mean, that's basically from Martin Luther. And, and other Reformers later kind of echoed it and passed it on. And it's not, it's just false. Grace was always the first word, even in the Old Testament. The law was kept out of that grace, not in order to earn that grace. That was Luther's own hang-up about trying to earn his own salvation and never living up to God. That was never something that Scripture put on him. That was something he took to Scripture. But the, from every book of the Old Testament, grace always comes before law. Even with the Exodus itself. Before they ever received a single commandment from Mount Sinai, they had already been delivered out of Egypt. They had already been saved. Um, so, again, the relationship over the legal piety issues, God always, if you've got to pick one to preserve, God will always seeming, seems to be, or majority of it will err on the side of the relationship part rather than the ritualistic part. And that's why he'll go on and say in the prophets about these very holidays we read about last week, I despise those. I hate them. Your celebrations are noise in my ears. Why? Because you're not looking after the orphan and the widow. You're exploiting the poor. You're not living the relationship part. So I don't care about all the rest of the stuff you do. Uh, it's a powerful word from the Old Testament. But again, it takes reading it in its context and going through it and seeing it. And we're out of time. So you guys have a great week. Next week we're going to come back pick up. All right, now what do we do with God's enemies that were tried to destroy them in previous chapters, but we've taken a break, so I'll remind us and we'll kind of get back on the narrative section because this is the last part of the book of Numbers. And so we'll wrap it up in November, probably. November, maybe early December. And then we'll do a little, like we did last time, a little couple of one-offs, and then we'll start the new year in Deuteronomy. So everybody have a great week. If you celebrate Halloween, have a happy one. If you don't celebrate harvest festivals, have a great harvest. Whatever you do, 
between you and the Lord, um, we've got food left too if you want some of that. So y'all have a great week.